So essentially what they're doing is live low, train high. This approach does not work. I'm just telling you right now. I know this is this is probably upsetting to hear for a lot of people who live in the mountains, but it's just flat out doesn't work. Howdy, friends. Welcome back to episode 18 of the Matchbox podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and I've got a bit of an update to provide for y'all this week. I'm sad to announce that my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, is no longer with us. No, not like that. He's just decided to part ways with Ignition Coach Co. in lieu of another career opportunity presented to him. So, until we can find a steady replacement, it'll just be Drew, Dylan, and myself on the show. So this week, we're covering the topic of altitude training and acclimation protocols. With some big races at even bigger elevations, we figured this was a timely topic. If you're racing something like Mountain Bike Nationals, Telluride 100, Leadville 100, or Steamboat Gravel, or anything else at high elevation, stay tuned to hear our takes on different approaches you can take to prep for events like these. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, drop us an email at info@ignitioncoachco.com with the email titled The Matchbox Podcast, or find us on Instagram and send us a message. All right, let's get into it. What's up, guys? How are we doing today? Good. Doing all right. Yeah. Looks like both you guys are traveling right now. For different reasons. Um, I'm traveling. Yeah. I'm in uh, Beaver, Utah right now. I don't know where Drew's at. <laughs> I'm in Sheboygan, Michigan. Nice. We did that mid-season break podcast two weeks ago, and now I'm on my mid-season break on the lake. There you go. I just finished up my mid-season break, and already there's a race, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, mine was last week as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, for all the listeners out there, we, we took a mid-season break from podcasting for a week. You know, not too much time off, just enough to get a little refresh, recharge. Um, so with that, we <clears throat> coming back today, and we're, we're going to be talking about the, the topic of, you know, racing at altitude, what it looks like to prep for racing at altitude, what different protocols you can use for uh, just elevation acclimation. Um, first, we have any any racing, though, that we want to talk about happened recently? Yeah, I mean, I guess right before it's this mid-season bit. break, I uh, I went to Pro Nats and Amateur Nats, and uh, it went pretty good. I was, um, I was shooting for a top 20 at the Pro Road Race because that's like the big... Of all the races, that was the big one where all the world tour riders are there. Um, and I had never done a race at that caliber. So I was real curious. Like, it was one of those races similar to the Mid South double that I did this spring. It's like, I don't even know if I'm going to finish, but I do have a pretty high goal of like top 20. But there, I very well could have just not finished. So it was like a, it's like a weird, you know. I just didn't know what to expect, I guess. And that was exciting. Um, but I got exactly 20th place. Um, so I was pretty happy with that. Um, I stayed with the lead group. Like I'm climbing that climb with the group, like the final group of 20 or so riders or actually it was 15 because there was a group of like five up the road, but I made it down to the last group of 15 people. Um, there's guys like, uh, Lawson Craddock and Nate Brown and, pretty sweet like we're just riding with all these big names in the sport from the u.s so 
it's pretty cool experience. Um, yeah. And then I got popped with about a lap and a half to go. Uh, the second to last time we hit that big hill on that course, I got popped off the group. Um, and then I was in the, ended up finishing in the second group. So yeah, I was pretty happy with that. And then I finished 11th in the crit, which, um, the crit is not as big of a deal as the road race. The road race was definitely the highlight of the weekend. And then the following weekend, I finished sixth that amateur Nats road race. Man, I was going in for the win for that race. I was going in. If anybody follows me on Instagram, you can go look at the video I posted. But I was, I was moving up on the left side, like passing everybody before the last turn. And I was about to go into the last turn, like second wheel. And the guy who was who was second wheel just out of nowhere swerves off to the left and cuts me off and almost almost causes me to crash and I have to check up grab my brakes all before the last turn into the sprint and it was an uphill sprint which kind of suits me um so I mean I know for sure if I hadn't had to check up I would have at least been on the podium like a top five but because I had to grab my brakes and check up right before the turn I ended up finishing sixth but man it would have been I would have loved to have seen how I would have done if that hadn't happened but I guess that's racing. I'm glad I didn't crash, but yep. So it was good. Yeah. Good, good nationals two weeks. Yeah. It looked like a pretty long sprint. Um, like a, a relatively short climb, obviously, but pretty much you'd turn. And then from the bottom of the climb, everybody was just sprinting as hard as they could for the finish. I don't know for like 30 seconds or something. Yeah, it was pretty long. Um, that also probably suits me as well, but I was, we were pretty bummed. Um, I had actually been off the front in a breakaway on the last lap with seven riders. And um, we thought the race was over there. We thought the seven of us were going to go to the line. Um, but the, the lead cars got in between the main peloton and our breakaway and basically pulled back, pulled back the peloton to us, like 20 or 30 riders. And so... So we were stoked because it was we had two riders in a break of seven um, going in for the finish. And, you know, with with four miles from the finish, we look back and the car is just zooming up on us. And then at, behind the car is like a group of 30 riders getting basically motor paced back to us. Um, so the officials could have done a better job at like waiting to fill the gap between the peloton and the breakaway. Um Cause it never even got out to a minute. I think that's the protocol is once there's a one minute gap between the main group and the breakaway cars can go between. Um, but, but they didn't wait that long. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of messed up the whole breakaway, but, um, yeah, I think, I think yeah. of all the people that were in the breakaway with me, only one, one of those riders beat me in the sprint. So like all the other four riders that were ahead of me at the end of the race, I had already dropped, we had already dropped those riders, um, that lap, but they got pulled back up to us. So that was frustrating, but there's nothing we can really do about that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we were happy with sixth, but we were definitely there to try to put somebody on, at least on the podium, if not in a Jersey. Sweet. Adam, you've been racing. Um, yeah, so I did the Lutzen 99er mountain bike race two weeks ago. Um, it's a, it's a Leadville qualifying event. Uh, it's 
as it sounds, it's well, it's supposed to be 99 or 100 mile mountain bike race up in Lutzen, Minnesota. Uh, but due to some like unconventional storms this winter and spring, they had to shorten the course or reroute the course uh, in order to avoid some like bridges that were downed or damaged or something. Um, so it only ended up being 90 miles, uh, but it's like mostly Jeep roads and dirt, like gravel roads and then snowmobile trails. And then it ends with like two miles of single track, which I'll get to that because that was frustrating. Um, but it's like, it's always known to be super fast. Um, the, the winning time this year for 90 miles was five hours and six minutes, uh, by a Minnesota guy, Josh Bauer, who races cyclocross. Drew, you probably know Josh. So uh, almost 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, well, like 18 miles an hour. Yeah. N- normally, right. like on like in the years past when it's been 100 miles, the, the winning time's around five and a half hours. Mm. So, yeah, super fast. Um, it's like there's 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 not like a ton of cumulative climbing but there there's a couple there's like a big climb to start and then there's a big climb to finish and then there's just a lot of rolling climbs in between so i, th- I think it only nets like five or six thousand total feet of climbing so not not a ton of elevation gain um but it's super cool like the the terrain is super awesome you're like right on lake superior so pretty views and stuff um the the race went okay for me i I went there with the intent or with the, with the goal of top five. I'd never done the race before, but I knew some people who had uh, kind of knew what kind of fitness I could bring into it. And I don't know, early in the year, I set that as a, as a big goal of mine was top five there. Um, and I, I started off riding super well. Uh, I, I like set the pace up the first big climb um, at what I thought was like a steady tempo. Turns out it was maybe, maybe ringing it a little bit too hard there, but um, felt super good. Like I came in tapered, uh, coach, uh, had me, you know, a week of tapering coming in. So it was fresh, um, kind of firing on all cylinders, but, um, yeah, led up the first climb, which was like 13 minute climb. Um, I did like 370 Watts for 13 minutes. Um, so that like, that like dropped it down to about 30 riders or so. And it was like, okay, cool. Made the first split. Great. Um, then the group kind of stayed together for the next maybe 20 or so miles until we hit the first snowmobile trail section and Josh Bauer actually went to the front and sort of drilled it on this section, which was awesome. Uh, and we, we dwindled it down from like 30 riders to the front group of eight and the front group of eight stayed together for the next, uh, close to 30 miles, um, through like a couple more snowmobile trail sections and then some fast gravel sections. The group wasn't like working super well together, but like well enough that we were able to establish a pretty good gap. Uh, like nowhere could we see the group behind us. Um, it would have been better if we could have worked together and built the gap even, even bigger, but they were just like, I don't know. I don't know if it's like, you know, mountain bikers just don't know how to rotate through a pace line or, they just didn't want to, but it was just hard to get everyone to cooperate. Um, so yeah, that group of front group of eight stayed together. I think we popped one guy maybe on one of the snowmobile trails. Um, cause I, I know that when I came through mile 50, there was like a checkpoint there, um, and, or time, time check or whatever there. And I was seven or I was in the top seven. There was only seven guys at that point. So we, we must've lost one of the guys at some point. Um, but 
the the my issues started like right around hour three, um, and it was it was like the most severe bonk I've ever had in my life. Like it was it was mm-hmm. crazy, um, and I think what I, and I want to ask you this, Dylan. So I think what happened was. The race was going to be, I knew about five hours, um, but I could only carry four bottles with me to start. So I tried to like hyper concentrate my bottles with flow, like put 120 Mm -hmm. grams of carbs into each bottle and like Mm -hmm. nurse each bottle over like an hour and 20 minutes or so to try and get it where I had my five hours of nutrition, but only in four bottles. Um, And I don't think Mm -hmm. that worked very well because... By the time I got to like hour three, I was just like, um, I was just craving water, like super bad. And it wasn't real hot at all. It was only like 70 degrees and pretty overcast. And, um, but I was just like, I just needed water. Like I, I I didn't want to drink my bottles anymore. Um, so I like popped off the group around three hours in, uh, in like just completely imploded and got caught by the chase group, got caught by the next chase group, and then finally kind of pulled myself together. I had to stop at every single aid station after that point just to get water, um, which for for you guys and for any listeners, if you can avoid aid stations at all costs, do so because they're chaotic. They take forever. No one knows what's going on. Like, appreciate the volunteers being out there, but there's just way too many people coming through aid stations. So, like, to try and figure out, like, all I wanted was fresh water, but, like, there was like Coke in the way and there was like lemonade and, and nutri- like drink mix mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I was like, just tell me where the water is. I, I don't want anything but water right now. And that was like the last yeah. thing to, fi- to find. Like no one, most people don't want water. They want something else. So that was a bummer. I probably lost five or six minutes just in aid station chaos alone. Um, but ended up coming in 15th overall. Uh, I was about 20 some minutes behind Josh, the winner. Um, and I was bummed cause I felt like in the front group, like I was riding strongest, but maybe that was the telling sign that I was doing too much, um, spent too much time on the front or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so I was actually just looking at, I, I hadn't even looked at the power file from, from the race until this morning. And, and I wanted to kind of take a look at it. My coach did Andrew, he, he took a look at it and, and sent me some numbers, but, um, so the first three hours until I cracked, Basically, my average power was 272 and my normalized was 302, uh, which is 0.94 IF for me. Um, yeah, that's definitely so, too high. So pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my average heart rate was 169, so I don't know. Also Pretty high, high tempo, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, so I don't um, know so your exact heart rate numbers, but... Yeah, like threshold heart rate's about 180, so... So if I, if I was your coach and I was analyzing this race and what went wrong, um, you did two things wrong. (laughs) Um, first of all, the pacing, like you said that you led up the first climb and you know, you did like 370 for 13 minutes, um, 370 for 13 minutes when it's going to be a five hour day is a bad idea. I mean, I'll do 370 for 13 minutes if I'm trying to hold on to someone's wheel and I need to be in that group to make the selection. But if it's up to me, I am not doing I'm not doing that kind of power when I'm gonna have to ride for for five hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. So honestly, I think what I would have done if I were you is just chilled in the wheels and let somebody else lead up the first climb and whatever pace they want to ride at is is what they want to ride at and you got to hang on to their wheel but I wouldn't have been the one dictating the pace. Um Sure. You know. Yeah, and, and I think that was a that, that was an error on my part too cuz I don't I don't normally race with power or heart rate. Mm-hmm. I mean it's there, but I don't display it or anything. Yeah. Um I just race off of feel. So like I felt like I said I felt like I was just riding a hard tempo and I was like if I can just if I can ride a hard tempo and avoid someone else from riding harder than this that's kind of why I was like well, I'll just stay on the front but looking back on it I think it was probably just that I was more fresh than I've been in training so it, right. hard tempo you know what felt like hard tempo RPE was actually well above threshold um, so I probably should have had at least power displayed during that first climb yeah I always have heart rate and power displayed because you're the first 15 minutes of a, of a race uh your perceived exertion is going to be all out of whack like yeah your threat your threshold power is going to feel like zone two <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. i mean yeah um yeah so and then let's talk about i mean we're we're not talking about electrolytes uh and hydration on this episode but i can just touch on it real quick because i think that was also one of your big mistakes is that <laughs> So I think that uh, when it comes to electrolytes, uh, they're, they're definitely athletes that have this mentality that more is better, um, and that is not, that's not necessarily the case at all. And the, the tricky thing about this is that it's, there are so many factors that go into what the right electrolyte concentration is for you, how hot it is, how heavy a sweater you are, how salty your sweat is, how heat acclimated you are, so on and so forth. Um, that it's very hard to give a blanket recommendation like this is how much sodium you need. Uh, but basically, what I'm getting at here is that I think by over concentrating your bottles, you were actually taking in too much sodium for the amount of liquid that you're taking in. Mm. Um, and that's why you were craving plain water, um, is because you wanted liquid that didn't have any sodium in it. Sure. Um, and of course, you know, you, you want to avoid that, right? Because if, if you get to the point where you're just craving plain water, then plain water doesn't have any calories. Um, Right. Right. So, yeah. So in, I mean, you know, it was a mistake on my part. Like I, I'd never tried that in training. So like, mm-hmm. why should you know? You should never do something brand new on race yeah. day, especially when it's like a, an A race. Um, but I, I got the idea because I, I looked at like the flow uh, recommendations for for mixing it, and it says mm-hmm. that for for ninety uh, for three scoops, which is ninety grams of carbs, you can mix that in anywhere from sixteen to twenty four ounces of water. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, well, 16, if I just, if I extrapolate that out to a 22 ounce bottle, then in theory, it should be the same concentration. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe just for me, cause I, I normally just do a 22 ounce bottle with three scoops. So like maybe my body just wasn't used to taking in that much added electrolytes. Um, but yeah, it didn't work, whatever I did. And the, the way that I, basically how the rest of the night went <laughs> i can tell that most of what i consumed did not get absorbed um because there there was lots of pink fluid exiting my body that night mm. 
Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, yeah, like I just hit like a total wall. So I, so first, the first half of the race or three hours of the race, normalized power was 302. The second half or, you know, the remaining two and a half hours, my normalized power was 224. Yeah. So like, you know, 40% reduction. Um, yeah. Just completely <laughs> blew up. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were to ask me, uh, okay, somebody has held 0.94 IF for three hours and they need to ride another two and a half. What, what <laughs> IF do you think they can sustain for that, that next two and a half? I'd be like, I don't know, probably 0. 0.6, <laughs> you know? Well, I did 0. 0.7, so I guess I did better than that. <laughs> All right. There you go. But I mean, that's, that's just a very, that's a very high pace for three hours. Um, I mean, I like I if that's the kind of if you had a three hour race and you had a point nine four IF and then you crossed the finish line and you were completely done, I'd be impressed that you held that IF for just three hours. Mm-hmm. And but like now let's take into account that you had two and a half hours more to go after <laughs> that. Yeah. Like I, yeah, for sure. I'll actually, I'll actually look at my normalized power mid race because I have an idea of what normalized power is sustainable for certain durations. And if I'm too far, even if I'm not feeling tired or, you know, I, I feel like I got plenty of juice in my legs. If I see, if I look at my normalized power and I realize that I'm, I'm way over what is probably sustainable for the duration of the race, I'll do what I can to try to conserve energy like i'll i'll mm-hmm. stop doing hard pulls on the front i'll you know i'll try to i'll try to tuck into the group more or if i'm doing a mountain bike race where i'm solo maybe i just back down my pace a little bit sure yeah and i think you know for so. for me like coming from you know a lot of cyclocross and shorter xc stuff i mean even even when i was doing you know specializing in like 50 milers like you know, you're still only talking three to four hours. I think for those durations, I could get away without using metrics um, and just racing more on field. But I think the longer yeah. the races are getting, and now that I'm doing, you know, kind of some of these longer hundred mile plus races, I think I need to a- adjust that approach because um, I agree. I, th- I think, I mean, I just don't in training do enough five, six hour hard rides to know what it, what I should feel like for, for those races. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of long, hard races, uh, should we get into our topic this week then? Let's do it. Okay. So we, we sort of came up with the topic of racing at altitude or, you know, prepping for, uh, high altitude races because there's a lot of high elevation races coming up. So, uh, unfortunately, if you're listening to this today and you're racing crusher in the tusher, it's probably a little too late for you to implement any of this, <laughs> unless you're going to implement right. the, the one day strategy. Um, but we got crusher in the tusher this weekend. We've got cross country mountain bike nationals in winter park next weekend. Uh, then we've got Telluride 100 also a high elevation mountain bike race the weekend after that. Uh, then we've got like Leadville coming mm-hmm. up early August steamboat gravel coming up in August. So a lot of big races that people are targeting at high elevation places. So we wanted to kind of, you know, figure it was a timely uh, chance for us to to get in here and and recommend some protocols or at least talk about our experiences with racing at altitude and prepping at altitude. Um, And I know for sure Dylan and I, we've got 
Leadville coming up. He's doing Crusher tomorrow. So both of us will be taking some kind of approach to uh, addressing the, you know, this scenario of racing at high elevation coming from relatively low uh, places of living. Mm-hmm. Drew, what about you, yep. man? Are you racing at altitude? Cool. So where should we start? No, I'm not. I'm not racing at, at altitude, but uh, because I have a very simple approach to to racing at altitude, and that's to avoid it at all costs. So, so I'm I'm, a, I'm adhering to my own protocol by not going and racing at altitude. So and that's a good thing about. So why, that why was are there actually no crit races at altitude? That was actually so. That's what I was about to say. That's actually one of the one of the factors that went into me changing paths because two years ago i would have been doing the same races you guys are doing like trying to chase the mountain bike goal um and that was one of the reasons i i decided to switch to crit racing is because i can i can be a very good crit racer and still live at sea level because um there's there's less of a technical component in crit racing like i don't need to be in brevard or colorado where i'm surrounded by technical trail all the time but then also i don't need to go and train at altitude or whatever or just deal with altitude at all because i can't think of any big crits that are at altitude um i know boise's this weekend Mm -hmm. but i don't even know i don't even know how high boise is but um i don't i've never heard of boise as like an altitude race so i don't don't even know oh Uh, boise's at 2700 feet feet. see yeah Yeah. that's the highest i can think of completely wrong (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah super low there uh i think there's one the littleton yeah, twilight crit in colorado which is at mm. like five thousand feet but that's probably yeah. and and salt lake city there there's oh yeah yeah there's usually uh races there but uh, i think five thousand feet's about the max that you'd get for crits yeah i'm okay with that mm. and and another factor is i don't like to fly to races and so both of those races wouldn't be on my calendar because i'd have to fly to both of them so that's another factor yeah. they're at altitude and i have to fly to them yeah i'm not going sorry not until <laughs> i think i can win some races so drew what's so give us a little backstory what what has led to that decision have you had some bad experiences racing at altitude yeah yeah, bad experiences. <laughs> That's all it is, really. Um, to, in 2018, I like I I kind of went all in for the mountain biking. Um, so I went out west for four and a half, five weeks or something like that. Um, and or maybe it was 2019. Actually, I think it was 2019. Um, yeah, it was 2019. And I went out there for the Whiskey 50, um, and I, I raced four weeks consecutive all all out west and i think most of them were at altitude so i started with whiskey 50 it went awful um if you've been to that race you know it starts with like a 45 minute climb and i just i couldn't even like even on the very first climb with fresh legs i couldn't my heart rate wouldn't go um well my heart rate was high but like i was getting dropped i'm like my heart rate's like at normal high whatever that is for me like 190 or whatever and guys that i normally crush are just like dropping me like so easy and i'm like what's going on so it felt like it felt like i was going as hard as i could but the fitness was like only operating at 80 percent of what it should have been and i I just hated feeling like that like i'd gone all the way to arizona to do this race and i didn't even get to i i felt like i didn't even get to really race 
to see, I didn't even get to really race with my true fitness. So I was pretty bummed. Um, I think if it wasn't at altitude, mm-hmm. I would have done way better, you know? So, and then after that, I did BWR San Diego. That one went better because that one's not at altitude, I don't think. Um, it's like right by the beach, so I don't think it can be at altitude. <laughs> um, and then I did I did Marathon Mountain Bike Nats, was much than at altitude. And then I did, um, but then I did Grand Junction, the, the what is that? What was that? What was that series called? The Epic um, Rides. Epic Rides, yeah, yeah. So I did the second one, which was in Grand Junction. And I did feel a lot better at that one because at that point I had already raced whiskey 50 at elevation and I had spent a week in um, Mammoth, California, which is also at elevation. So I had done some altitude training, but I had been going up and down for like the whole month, but I did feel much better at Grand Junction, but still maybe 90% of what I thought my fitness should have felt like. Um, so I got, so Mm -hmm. I got 45th at, at whiskey 50 and I got 29th, I think at Grand Junction. So Definitely an improvement, um, but I still, you know, yeah, I still think that with if it wasn't at altitude, and maybe I'm just crazy, but I think I think I should have been like racing for a top twenty if if it wasn't at altitude. Yeah, and the hard thing with with the mountain bike yeah, is you, I agree. you you were talking about it earlier. You you're going up against a lot of guys that are living in places of high altitude. So yeah. Durango, Colorado, the Front Range of Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I wouldn't really consider any parts of North Carolina to be high enough to be acclimated, but Utah, um, you know, certain parts of California. So, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these guys and gals are already acclimated to five, six, seven thousand plus feet. So for them, like they're just they're racing on their everyday fitness when they go to race at that same elevation. So you know, I mean, yeah, coming from sea level, you are at a pretty distinct uh, disadvantage right away. Whereas even on the road, you know, a lot of the roadies, um, a lot of them live in Boulder or something, but, um, you know, when you, when you go from high elevation down to sea level, it's not as much of a difference, you know, like they're not, they don't have that much of an advantage going to sea level as you get disadvantaged by going up to elevation. Yeah, absolutely. I had heard, I had heard. So you guys want to, you guys, what's up? I had heard that USAC has was gonna make a rule that mountain bike nationals wouldn't be above six thousand feet or whatever. I don't know some some altitude footage. But really? Obviously that that hasn't. No, they love because, that. I mean, I could see I could see the argument that like there's a lot of people that don't go to mountain bike nats maybe because of the altitude, like. If they brought it down to a somewhat normal range, you know, 5,000 feet or lower, I feel like that would open the door for a lot more people to, to want to come, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Here, you guys want to hear some numbers about how much uh, altitude affects your performance at various various heights? Let's hear it. Yeah, let's do it. Mr. Data um, Analysis. So this is this is coming off of a, a anyone can look this up, but this is a chart off uh, that Joe Friel created. Um, it's actually off of Joe Friel's blog, but it's pretty helpful. So um, we got the elevation, and then we've got available aerobic power. Um, and what's helpful is that they have 
acclimatized and non-acclimatized. So at, uh, I would say that altitude, like, you know, an altitude, quote, altitude race starts at probably five or 6,000 feet, right? That's probably the point at which you'd consider it an altitude race. So at 5,000 feet, acclimatized people are at 94.4% of their available aerobic power and non-acclimatized people are at 91.1% of their available aerobic power. Um, so let's bump that up a little bit. Let's go to like 8,000 feet. At 8,000 feet, acclimatized people are at 88.6% and non-acclimatized people are at 84.2%. Um, let's, let's bump that up again to like Leadville height. Uh, let's do 11,000 feet. We got 80.9% for acclimatized people, and we've got 77% for non-acclimatized. So, Drew, so, when you so the said interesting you, were, thing, you felt like you were the interesting operating thing at 80%, there, that's totally right. Yeah. The, the interesting thing there is the, the difference between the acclimatized versus the non-acclimatized person doesn't actually seem to uh, change a whole lot as you're increasing in elevation, though. So it was right around sure. three to three and a half percent at five thousand feet, and then again at eleven thousand feet, it was in that three to three and a half percent range, um, which is super interesting. You would you would think that the non-acclimatized person would be more disadvantaged the higher it went. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Also, you know, uh, three to three and a half percent. Perhaps there's some listeners who hear that and think that's that's not even that big a deal, 3%. But I mean, when we're talking about bike racing, I mean, the 3% can be quite a bit. 3% could be the difference between winning a bike race and, you know, not even getting in the top 10, depending on how, how stacked the competition is. Yeah, for sure. So do you guys want to talk, uh, acclimation approach next? Sure. Yeah, so I've done uh, I've done quite a bit of research into altitude training, partially because I did a video on it. Um, so I had to do a lot of research for that video, and also, you know, every once in a while I do altitude races, and I just want to know what what the best approach for acclimating to altitude is. So I think that the the advice um, that you often hear coaches and and uh, and athletes give is that. You either want to arrive at a if, – if you're coming from low altitude and you're going to high altitude, you either want to arrive the day before or you need to be out there for at least two weeks to acclimate because if you're out there for any duration in between, then you haven't acclimated and you're getting all the negative effects of altitude. So you know your performance is not going to be optimal. Um, I mean, that's, that's what I believed for a long time. I'm not saying that that's incorrect, but there actually is research that, uh, goes against that theory. For example, there's a study that, that tested one power, you know, power output at one, one day at altitude versus power output at three days of altitude. They actually found that three days of altitude was an improvement over one day of altitude. Um, and I don't think that's the only study that comes to that conclusion. It's somewhat mixed, the research. I wouldn't say it's conclusive at all. And I think the reason why it's mixed, if I had to theorize here, is because um, 
how people respond to altitude is so individual. Some people do really well at altitude. Some people don't do really well. Some people acclimate faster than other people. So, um, you know, there, there could be an altitude protocol that works really well for one person and doesn't necessarily work really well for other people. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, and, and there might be, you know, people out there who respond differently depending on, uh, you know, other environmental factors too. Um, you know, and, and I'd be curious to know, Dylan, do you remember what protocol they use for uh, training or, or testing those individuals across those f- first three days? Like what kind of efforts they were doing? Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the study, but obviously they're trying to att- trying to test aerobic um, aerobic power output. So they're not going to do a, a thirty second test, right? They're going to do something, you know, a test that's long enough to measure uh, somebody's aerobic capacity. Um, but I would I would have to go back and look at the study to see the exact details. Sure. So what, what, what's your approach this year, Dylan? You've got two big races mm-hmm. here at altitude coming up. Both are part of the lifetime grand prix series. So, you know, key events on your calendar. What, what's your, what, what's your approach? Yeah. So, um, I have just arrived here at altitude in Beaver, Utah. I actually, I, to get here, I had to drive through Colorado. So I've, I've been at altitude for probably three or four days at this point. And, and like I said, if I, uh, if I was going off of the theory that you either need to be one day or two weeks, I probably would have taken the Southern route to get to Beaver and driven through Texas and gotten here a day before, but I'm actually not too worried about being out here three or four days now. Um, just because of some of the research I've done. That being said, I don't really have super high hopes for crusher and the tusher this weekend, which is in Beaver. Um, and part of the lifetime series because I'm just coming off of my midseason break and coming off of COVID, and uh, I've got very little training in my legs since all of that. So the altitude is one factor, but I think my general lack of fitness right now is is probably the bigger factor. <laughs> um, but I, I my big goal with this trip, um, and I'm going to stay out here in Colorado uh, for for about a month is Leadville and I'm hoping to be in much better shape for Leadville and acclimated to altitude by the time Leadville happens. And, and are you guys going to go straight from Beaver up to Leadville and stay in Leadville the whole time? No, I think we're going to stair step the altitude a little bit. So, um, you know, Leadville's pretty high up. It's at 10,000. Um, and I think instead of going straight to 10,000, we'll, We'll stay at you know five or six thousand, and then we'll stay at eight thousand, and then we'll go up to ten thousand um, to kind of let the body gradually adjust, as opposed to going straight to ten thousand and kind of feeling like crap for a while. Sure. So basically, the uh, you're using this lifetime series event as a training race. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Are you allowed to? Sure, do that? I guess you're not allowed to do that. There's probably some rule that says you cannot what? lifetime grand P train race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look at the rules closer. There is a I I don't want to bash this race too hard, but there is a rule that you can't publicly urinate on the course. So bummer. Dude, hold on. So that that <laughs> I forgot about this. Uh <laughs> like earlier this week, I I had to go pee real bad while I was out for my training ride and uh and there like the the gravel road that I was on was kind of a heavily trafficked road so i didn't want to like pull off to the side and pee so i tried to mm-hmm. pee off the bike and dude it freaking worked no way dude i have oh, yeah. a really hard it i have out. a really hard time peeing off the bike man i uh i need to figure that out we need a podcast on on how to do that <laughs> i agree um yeah i uh i can't do it i've tried i tried yeah, three I times I don't know, amateur man. nats and all three really failed attempts oh this is this is my first attempt i mean maybe it helps that i was just training and wasn't in a race or something but yeah i saw tanner ward on the best buddies team pull back three times and he peed three times and the time that i was just trying to pee once he paid he peed like three different times (laughs) he'd go to the front come back go i'm like oh my gosh this guy is a he's hydrated if you ever race with Pete Stetna, I mean, in the first half of a gravel race, he is peeing all over the place. He's just, <laughs> he's just like peeing every hour. Um, yeah, <laughs> and this he doesn't stop. Skill. You know, he pee, pees off the bike. So, well, yeah, good thing uh, Crusher is not too long of a race, right? It should only be four hours or something, right? Uh, if you're fast, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Pete Stetna's winning time last year was just over four hours, which you know, hmm. Pete Sutton is like definitely one of the best climbers in gravel. So I don't expect my time to be four hours flat, but yeah, it's, it's definitely on the shorter side. Well, you better, yeah, better but... figure out your peeing strategy then. Five <laughs> hours is pushing it. Dylan. I don't, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't pee. I don't have to pee that much during racing. Um, unless if it's, especially if it's hot, uh, which it's supposed to be 90 ish degrees, although we're going up into higher altitude. So it's not, going to be 90 degrees where we're at but i think i'll be fine i'm telling you dude this is a training race don't even you and pete stedna aren't even in the same category at this race you're there to build <laughs> fitness not win right right and you can use so, that as yeah, a so actually getting, on the start getting line. back into just, the right on the start line you should just be like yeah this is just a training race for me you know yeah you should you should put your helmet should, on backwards and say that totally should i uh should, should i attack at mile back. should i attack at mile one and and uh see how far off the front i can get before i blow up and get reeled back in that's not training i mean what what do you mean that's still not training <laughs> it's kind of training the, i'm doing you uh, never, you know you should you should just chill back with with the second group zone two all day with them no dude, when you blow up just tell everyone you were doing an ftp test real quick yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so, so getting back into um, your, your, your yeah your elevation approach. So, when you so you said you're st- you know you're still training right now. Uh, you know, trying to bring more fitness into Leadville, which is six weeks from now. Um, so, when you go up and stair step your way up in in elevation, when you get to Colorado, are you planning on sleeping high and training low? Like, are you going to try and mm. do that approach to to get better training in? Yeah, let's definitely talk about the uh, different approaches here. So for those those who are not familiar, um, 
there's sleep high, train low, which basically means that you're living at a high altitude, but when you're training, you're trying to go down to lower altitude. There's sleep high, train high, which I feel I feel like these names are self-explanatory at this point. Uh, there's uh, sleep low, train high, and then I guess I guess there could be sleep low, train low, which is what everybody at low altitude does all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, so let's talk about these approaches because this is actually a very important component of, of altitude training. And I think it's a component that a lot of people mess up. So a lot of people, uh, if they live in the mountains um, and maybe they've got an altitude race coming up, uh, they think, okay, I want to al- acclimate for altitude. Uh, let me go ride in the mountains at high altitude. And that's how I'll acclimate. So essentially what they're doing is live low, train high. Um, this approach does not work. I'm just telling you right now. I know this is this is probably upsetting to hear for a lot of people who live in the mountains, um, but it's just flat out doesn't work. And it <laughs> it's to the point where like there was a review. I remember reading this. There was a review paper on altitude training and different altitude protocols, and they were talking about live low, train high. And I don't think I've ever heard a review paper say this before. They they were saying, um, they were saying there is no need for further study on the live low, train high method. Like that's how certain they are that it doesn't work. And and if you want if you want a reason why live low, train high doesn't work is because when you go into the mountains to train at high altitude. You're only going to be up there for what, like two to five hours, probably at the most. That is just simply not enough time for your body to make uh, any adaptations to altitude. And it doesn't matter that you're riding your bike and exerting yourself, your body is just not going to make the adaptations if you're spending, you know, 20 plus hours a day at low altitude. And in fact, they, they've done research on altitude tents and simulated altitude as well. Uh, like, you know, you sleep in an altitude tent to, to try to, um, you know, do this sleep high train low thing. And the biggest, I think the biggest issue there is that sleeping for eight hours a day at high altitude is still not enough time at altitude. Like they're, they're talking about how if you're going to do an altitude tent or some sort of simulated altitude, you actually need like 12 to 14 hours a day, um, which is pretty inconvenient. Most people don't have 12 to 14 hours a day to sit in an altitude tent. (laughs) Um, so, so basically, un- unfortunately for all, all the people who live in the mountains and, and go train in the mountains, going up to the mountains to train is not going to um, acclimate you to altitude, unfortunately. Now, if we that leaves us with uh, live high, train high, and live high, train low. So live high, live high train high. Uh, is just you're you're at high altitude all the time, and obviously if you're at high at high altitude, 24 hours a day for multiple weeks on end, you're gonna acclimate to altitude. And if you have a high altitude race, this is better than not than just staying at sea level until the race. Um, although your training intensity will suffer, and by the way, that's also another reason why live <laughs> live low, train high doesn't work is because 
you're spending all your time at low altitude. And then the only time you're riding your bike, your training intensity is suffering. So you're getting like the worst of both worlds. And by the way, if you ever see people training with one of these high altitude training masks, they don't work for the exact same reason that I'm that I'm laying out here. Don't use a high altitude training mask. It is not helping you. Um, so, so live high, train high is going to work better than staying at sea level if you've got a high altitude race. If you've got a low altitude race and you're trying to live high, train high, it's debatable whether that's helping. Um, you know, there there's conflicting research about whether whether that's going to help you for your sea level performance. I would say that the most optimal strategy for for acclimating to altitude while maximizing performance on the bike, which is obviously the point of acclimating uh, for altitude in the first place, is to maximize performance on the bike. Um, would be live high, train low. So you are you're living at high altitude. And then when you're training, that's the only time that you're at low altitude, which if you think about it, just so happens to be the most inconvenient of all these approaches, because you basically have to live at the top of a mountain and then, and then, you know, either ride or drive down to the bottom to do all your training, which is like the opposite of how people train in the mountains. But, um, and, and by doing this, you're getting the best of both worlds. You are acclimating to altitude, but your training intensity is not suffering. Um, so if you can get away with doing that, that is the best approach. Cool. Yeah. And, and fortunately for you, like you'll have that opportunity. You won't be able to train super low based on where you're going to be, you know, relative mm -hmm. to some of the lower elevations, but you know, you'll probably be able to go from seven, eight, 9,000 feet where you'll be sleeping at down, mm -hmm. you know, two to 4,000 feet from there by getting down into the, uh, the valleys and canyons of, you know, the, uh, summit County there in Colorado. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, if, if somebody listening lives at pretty high altitude and they have the ability to, to drive a little bit, to get to lower altitude to train, um, but it, you know, it's it's a hassle to drive every single day to go ride your bike i would say it's probably most important that you do your high intensity workouts in the week at lower altitude the endurance rides it's not it's not that big a deal that you do them at high altitude but if you can do your high intensity intervals at a lower altitude and get a little bit more bang for your buck when you do them um that'll go a long way I mean, that's kind of our yeah, approach so, yep. on a lot of different areas, right? Like, even if we're not talking about altitude, you should always make your high-intensity days the highest priority workouts. So, like, don't do a gym session the day before your high-priority pri or high-intensity workout because that's going to that's gonna lower your performance on that day. You know, most of the time with me and the athletes I coach, like, our, my high-intensity workouts come – right after a rest day because that's going to be the, the day that I'm going to mm -hmm. perform the best. And so this kind of like what, what Dylan just said is like totally down that same thought process. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, so Dylan's taking the, you know, what would 
other other than like moving himself to Leadville for five years, um, you know, he's he's taken the you know somewhat optimal approach to acclimatizing to altitude. Uh, Dylan, let's talk about some of the alternatives for folks who let's yep. say are doing Leadville but can't spend a month out there. Uh, you know, you you talked about this in the beginning. You know, there used to be this conventional wisdom of go there for two weeks or don't go there at all. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, until the day before. Um, what if someone says, Hey, you know what? I, I want to take a family vacation. We want to go out there a week before. What do you say to something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I said this at the beginning of the podcast, I'm not saying that the two week, it's either two weeks or one day. I'm not saying that that approach is wrong for everyone. I mean, there are definitely probably people that if they're out there for a week, they haven't really acclimated a whole lot, but they are definitely not feeling great. Right. Um, and, and I come back to this thing where altitude is very individual. So, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, like a lot of people, it it takes experimenting to figure out how your body is going to respond to altitude. And, and a lot of times people, you know, they may have gotten into the lottery for Leadville and this is like the first, the first altitude race that they're doing. Right. So they have, they have no idea how their body's going to respond. They don't know if they should go out you know, uh, a week before or a day before. Um, and so it's kind of hard to give a recommendation, unfortunately. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I, I guess, I guess my, my, the reason why I, I brought that up at the beginning is because I wouldn't necessarily be afraid of spending three to five days at altitude before your race. Um, like I know a lot of people are, uh, because it's not, it, According to the research now, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And depending on who you are, it may even help you. Um, sure. And, and going, into fur, going further into what people can do to acclimate for altitude if they don't live at altitude, it turns out that uh, heat training and altitude training have very similar, you know, they, they uh, cause very similar adaptations. Um, you know, heat training increases blood volume. It's very helpful at altitude. So... If you are unable to altitude acclimate, if you can at least heat acclimate, that's definitely better than nothing, right? Um, You may also want to take some nutritional considerations into account. Um, Most people's appetite goes down when they they go to altitude. Um, Depending on what race you're doing, that may either be a good or a bad thing. Uh, (laughs) um, And uh, and a lot of, I, I, I think that, increasing your your iron consumption uh, a lot of people have that recommendation as well when they go up to altitude i think you should um you should also probably just try to increase your fitness 20 percent too because if you can <laughs> because if remember if we go back to those numbers the 80 percent if you can just increase mm-hmm. your fitness 20 percent you'll be you know effectively you'll be at 120 percent of your normal fitness and then when you go to altitude, mm-hmm. you'll be at a hundred percent because you just lose that top twenty percent. So I mean, that's just basic math. Like just gain. Yeah, I mean, and and I do think I do think. More. Yeah, I think that is an interesting point. You know, when when we were looking at those numbers earlier, and you were seeing that an act, you know, climatized person at eleven thousand feet was at eighty three percent, but a non acclimatized person was at eighty percent. Um, I'd be curious to know what those numbers are, and I don't know what the study, maybe this is how they did it, but if you took the same individual 
and had them train at low altitude for two months, and then they just went up to altitude unacclimatized mm-hmm. in, in you know did their performance, and then you know, and then you had that same individual train at elevation for two months, and then do their performance. How you know whether that three percent would still be relevant? Because they are getting higher quality training at the lower elevation. You know, their power output's going to be much higher. Heart rate's going to be more in check. Their recoverability is going to be higher. Um, so I'd be kind of curious that way too. And I, I think, Drew, that's kind of what you're getting at is like, you know, take advantage of the fact that you can train uh, very effectively at low altitude and do whatever you can to improve your fitness as much as possible. Because, yeah. you know, then then the hit that you're going to take at elevation will at least relatively be a little bit uh, you know, lower if your fitness is coming in higher. Yeah. You guys know that I love, uh, Matt Fitzgerald and he has a really good book called racing weight, which is all about, you know, like it's all about nutrition, weight loss, um, you know, like your optimal racing weight, but I like how practical he is. It's a six step. He has six steps in his thing. And one of them is simply to train, right? Um, he says, Mm -hmm. If you're training the right way, your your body composition will will somewhat like work itself out. Um, and I like like I like the simplicity of that. Um, and so I like the simplicity of maybe carrying that over to altitude too. Like, still keep training the right way um, before you go to altitude. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know you probably make the same argument about marginal gains um for somebody somebody who only trains you know five hours a week uh how about you train 10 hours a week before you start obsessing about whether you know you've got the you know the lightest bike or like the most arrow helmet or or whatever the marginal gain is right please don't get the most arrow helmet (laughs) (laughs) um so, you know, focus on the big things before you focus on the little things. There are definitely a lot of people focusing on the little things before they focus on the big things. And 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 if we're if we're bringing that mantra over to altitude, I think uh, over obsessing about your acclimation. Um, I don't want to say it's a little thing because it, you know it, it could have a big effect f- for certain racers, but just getting your fitness as high as it can possibly be. I would completely agree is, is probably the best thing that you can do going into an altitude race. There's marginal gains and then there's maximal gains and I'm all about I, the maximal gains. I, yeah. I, uh, I call them larginal gains, marginal, marginal. gains. Marginal. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. so good. That's better than maximal. Darn. Hey, <laughs> hey Drew. So I know that, <clears throat> Um, we, we were going to record the show yesterday, but Dylan was MIA cause he was out previewing the course and you had a couple questions that you wanted to ask us. Yeah. About... One in one in particular. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Go when ahead. somebody, I've got an athlete, um, who is, who is going to altitude. She's actually doing Telluride. Um, it's Caitlin mm-hmm. Maddox. She's one of the ignition coaches. She's going to do Telluride. She's getting there just about two weeks before ahead of the race and I have a rough idea of what she should do leading up to the race but I wanted to see what you guys had to say like what types of workouts should she do 
from the time she gets there to the time of the race. She's got approximately 12 or 13 days before that race. And so she's going to be at um, Golden, Colorado. And so I, th- mm-hmm. I don't, don't 5,600 feet. I was about to say, I think it's at like 6,000. So, um, so what would you guys, you know, what kind of workouts should she be doing? When yeah, so 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 f- for context, so yeah, Golden is at fifty six hundred feet, and Golden, Colorado is right in the front range. Uh, so you can't really go any lower than that. Uh, you can you can really only train either at that same elevation or higher. Any further west you go, you're going to get into higher elevation, uh, unless you drive like three hundred miles east, which that's not feasible. Um, Telluride though is at eighty seven hundred feet, so we're talking three thousand feet higher. Right. And I'm not sure if she's, I'm not sure how many days before Telluride she's actually going up to that 8,000 feet. But I do know she's going to be at the 6,000 feet for two weeks. Right. Yeah. I mean, as far as, as far as what workouts somebody should do, like let's say somebody's taking the standard two weeks before an altitude race, they're going out to to Mm -hmm. altitude. Um, You're probably not going to feel great in the first week that you're there. And, uh, I mean, a really common recommendation is to reduce the intensity when you get out, get to altitude. Now, the interesting thing here is that that contradicts the recommendation of what a optimal taper should look like. So an optimal taper should, you should maintain intensity, but reduce volume. Um, so, I mean, you could go with maybe a little bit of a hybrid approach where the intensity is a little bit lower than what you would typically do in a taper. Like maybe if, um, like a, like a little bit, uh, like one less interval day or, or one less interval per workout. Um, I would probably also make the recommendation that when she's doing her workouts, she doesn't max herself out. Um, so like, let's say she's doing a VO2 max session instead of instead of doing all the all the intervals that she could possibly do how about stop it one or two intervals before she's at that point um so just just to speed up the recovery process a little bit and once she's two weeks away from the race she should be in pretty good fitness level at that point hopefully so it's not not that big a deal yeah i was uh, so i was yeah, thinking so I, and i would say Oh, go ahead, Drew. I was I was thinking that she would do, you know, like the first couple of days she's there, she's just riding endurance just to get used to where she is. Um, but then maybe after you know two days of just endurance riding, we do a couple low intensity like tempo sessions, and then we just kind of do a, we kind of just build up from there. So I wasn't sure. I wouldn't think that you'd want to do that much over like anaerobic workouts, like. I wouldn't think that you'd want to do VO2 as like a, somebody who's trying to acclimatize to altitude or get used to altitude. Yeah. I mean, again, there's uh it's, it's a, it's very individual. It probably depends on what kind of race you're training for. And, uh, and there's certainly mixed opinions on it. Um, it's, I, I would say the reason why the research is fuzzy on what you should do when you're at altitude or how long you should be at altitude or all of this, again, comes back to what I said at the beginning, which is acclimation to altitude is very individual. You can't you can't give a blanket recommendation that'll work for everyone. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in like a, an approach that I usually take with my athletes is kind of similar to what you're talking about, Drew, you know, even if, you know, you're in the theoretical two week taper period, um, I, I still like to take a little bit more conservative approach and just have them do endurance rides for the first two to three days and then check in with me. Cause I want to see how their body's responding and, and mm-hmm. how, particularly how they're recovering. You know, are they sleeping well at night? Are they able to take in enough, you know, water and nutrition to recover properly? Uh, cause that's a big thing too. Like, how, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to get dehydrated at elevation. Uh, a lot of people, you know, mess that up. So I want to know like how their body's responding. You know, some people get altitude sickness, depends on how high you are too. You know, 5,000 feet, it's not really that high, like probably not going to be a huge concern for Caitlin. Um, but, but regardless, I want to know how they're feeling after a couple days before we throw an interval session on them. And if they're feeling good, if they feel strong, like maybe, you know, day two wasn't good, but day three felt better. And now, you know, come day four, they're feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. Then that's usually when I'll get back into, you know, their you know, whatever, you know, standard protocol we'd have in place for whether it's training or tapering for that event. Um, and I agree with Dylan though, if, if we would normally do like a five by four VO two max workout, I'd probably either do four by four VO two max or do like a five by four low VO two max, like, you know, high threshold, low VO two. Um, that can be tricky too. Cause you don't know what their power zones are now at ele- elevation. Uh, so sometimes you have to resort to like RPE for those. Hopefully they've been doing enough of those workouts to understand and, and know, uh, kind of what the sensations they should feel, but it's also going to be different. They're not going to feel it as much in their legs. They're going to feel it more like in their breathing and, you know, heart rate's going to be a little bit higher. Um, maybe they're like, you know, just out of breath, you know, a lot easier. So, you know, it is a little bit tr- trickier when, you know, trying to prescribe those first few interval sessions at, uh, for a rider who's, you know, newer or, um, you know, more recently adapting to elevation. Um, but I would say also for Caitlin, so in these two weeks before Telluride, I don't know when she's going to be going up there. You said you're not sure if she's going a day or two before or whatever, but actual, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would advise her to spend, uh, you know, five out of seven of her training days at that 56 to 6,000 feet, you know, and trying to avoid the, temptation like we were talking about earlier of like riding super high up into the mountains i know that that's where like all the good trails are and all the fun mountain climbs and things like that but for her to try and maximize her per you know her training performance in that week um, and also try and reduce the the effect it's going to have uh on her uh you know fatigue level I would say to try and take advantage of some of those lower level uh trails and, and roads and things like that yeah, for sure. And the good thing is Golden, Colorado has a lot of that. Uh, I, I lived there for four years and I lived next door in, uh, in Lakewood, Colorado for two years. So uh, there's there's a lot of lower elevation trails and roads and climbs you can hit without going above like 7,000 feet. There's a lot of fun terrain. Nice. Sweet. Anything else? Uh, anything? Yeah. Anything else, guys? Um, I don't think so. I think we. I think we covered the the general, all all the general things with altitude. I mean, you know, you can always get deeper into the weeds, but uh, for anybody who kind kind of wants a general overview, I think we did a good job here. 
Yeah, so and we'll report back maybe after Leadville, kind of check in and do a race recap or something, see how this went. Because I'm taking the opposite approach. I'll be getting to Leadville Friday afternoon, racing Saturday morning at 6 a.m. So uh, we'll kind of we'll get to compare and see. Uh, I know personally for me, my first day at altitude usually is a okay, but day mm-hmm. three, four, five are usually pretty horrible, uh, and I can't unfortunately get there a month earlier two weeks earlier to truly acclimate so i'm gonna be yeah gambling with with the last minute arrival time but we'll see how it works out nice yeah and it's good that you've go ahead it's good that you've been able to uh experiment with that and that you know that about your body you know yeah so actually interestingly enough last year i went to leadville to crew for one of my athletes um Mm -hmm. so i Let's see. So Leadville was on Saturday. So I flew in like late Thursday night and got Mm -hmm. up to Leadville at like midnight Thursday and then went out and rode uh, like 40 miles of the course on my gravel bike. I rode from like Twin Lakes Dam back to the finish basically. So I rode pretty much all the course except Columbine climb and descent Um, and like surprisingly like felt pretty good. I mean, you're still at 10,000 feet. It still sucks, but um, mm-hmm. like given the circumstances, I felt relatively good. And then like two days later when I went and raced steamboat, uh, I felt terrible. Like the, the elevation was just hit me super hard. Yeah. So, and I don't know if that's, if that's just cause I don't maybe sleep as well. Um, or just physiologically, maybe I'm slow to adapt or something. Um, but that, that would always happen at the Epic rides events too. Like the first day we'd go out and pre-ride, I'd feel good. Second day was the crit, feel terrible. Fourth day was the backcountry race, and I'd just be, like, dying. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's good that I've experimented with it. Probably have 10 races at altitude um, of similar protocol where I, you know, typically it's most convenient to arrive three to four days before. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's usually when it happens. But um, so, you know, this year, a little bit different approach, trying to take advantage of the last minute arrival time and just kind of see how it goes. If it doesn't go well, then maybe next year, uh, you know, reconsider and try and make it work to come out there for two to four weeks before. But, uh, if it does go well, then maybe this is the approach. Sweet. And when all else fails, all right, guys, well, Dylan, good, just be a crit racer. (laughs) Good luck tomorrow. What'd you say? Yeah. When all else fails, just become a crit racer. Definitely. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!